Hello and welcome to the latest Asset Allocator podcast. My name is Dan Jones, editor of Asset Allocator, and today we are very pleased to be joined by Ben Seager-Scott, head of multi-asset funds at Tilney, to talk about some of the big issues in UK asset allocation and fund selection. Coming up, we'll be looking at regional equity allocations and diversity in fund management. But first, my colleague and co-host Dave Baxter is going to talk a little about the main topic of the day. Dave. Today, we're discussing the big question mark hanging over many portfolios at the moment, inflation. Worries about higher inflation have arguably been the main catalyst for a number of asset class moves this year. But how valid are those concerns? And how can allocators and fund selectors express these views within their portfolios? Ben, a lot of the inflation narrative this year has focused on investors' willingness, or perhaps otherwise, to believe the Federal Reserve. Um, The Fed said it thinks price rises are still transitory in the main. And after the Q1 sell-off, US 10-year yields have stayed stable at 1.6%, which suggests a degree of confidence in the central bank. But what's your take on this? Should investors be planning for meaningful inflation? Um, Should they be planning for US rate hikes? Well, I think those are the two biggest questions that that investors broadly are looking at at the moment. Inflation has been a focus certainly for uh, just under the last 12 months as we come out of the COVID crisis. And I think what's most interesting, those two questions are two different sides of the same coin but it's worth reflecting on separately. I think inflation is one question, and certainly as we look at asset classes, a lot of the strategy work we've been doing, you can look at how asset classes perform when inflation rises, but also how they respond to to interest rate changes and perceived interest rate changes. And some of those can move a little bit in in different directions. Um, And I think what sparked a lot of the recent concerns, people tend to cast their minds back to 2013 with a taper tantrum, sort of what that may mean in terms of monetary policy. And around inflation, you know, we've we've seen those numbers tick up. There's a lot of talk over over basic effects and and whether or not this is this is transitory. What I think has sparked it this year. So this is something that we were certainly focused on from about June last year. We started shifting our strategies in in favour of a higher inflation environment. I think really what kicked it off at the start of this year was some loose talk from Federal Reserve officials talking about the potential need at some point in the future to reduce the purchase programme. They quickly backtracked on that back in, in January but I think what that did is remind everyone, you know, that one of the problems you have with QE and, and monetary policy overall, the initial response, you cut interest rates, you, you pump money into the system. Initially, that lowers government bond yields and in turn, all of the related assets. But then if you have a successful policy, it tends to go the other way and it pushes the cycle as you see growth coming through. And inflation, I think, is, is, all, is all really tied in, in with that. What I think is most important as we look just focusing on inflation to start with, inflation, to my mind, is broken down really into two different parts. And this is the the crux I sort of tell anyone that listen, investors internally and and externally. There's backward looking inflation year on year CPI numbers. And I think that's getting a lot of headlines at the moment that the bumper prints in the US percentage point moves. Uh, But that's really looking back. It doesn't necessarily inform about the future. And I think we need to distill the backward looking numbers that are going to be distorted for a while with forward looking inflation, medium term inflation. That's what gets baked into asset prices. And for what it's worth, I do think that that in the future, uh, that medium term inflation 
is going to be marginally ahead of these of the two percent target that a lot of banks t- tend to tend to focus on. There's even some potential upside risk to that target, and I think at the moment it's easy to make that case. Uh, a lot of retail investors are quite comfortable. Yes, inflation. I see that ticking up. I buy the inflation argument. I think what's going to be harder. The expectation is inflation is going to likely peak in the next few months. I think as that CPI number is falling back and it stabilizes at a higher level, it's harder, I think, to get people worried about inflation on the medium term when that CPI number is falling. So that's really what I'm focusing on a lot at the moment. And on those year on year numbers, I think there's two elements. And I do like this, this term. Is it transitory or is it persistent? And there's two factors I see really playing into that. Firstly, there's the base effects, and that's simply you know, prices 12 months ago in the middle of a crisis where prices were available, because a lot of pricing wasn't available, but they fell very sharply. We had that crazy scenario where oil, I think, briefly traded below minus $35 a barrel, and oil prices and other prices were subdued. And simply normalised prices this year is a much, a much higher level, and that drives increased year-on-year numbers. But you can look almost automatically through that. That's relatively straightforward to forecast. Everyone can see this, this spike and then drop back coming. That's effectively baked in. I think what's interesting and, and the bit that many, many people are struggling with, indeed, we're struggling with, to know how much of this are one-off transitory effects that aren't base effects. And that is things like uh, we, we've missed uh, we, we've missed some of the, the um, clothing sales, for example, that impacts pricing. But also we're seeing shortages in chips, shortages in timber. I've you know I, I've tried to get a, a shed for the garden, and you can tell you the <laughs> prices uh, are, are a little bit eye watering. And a lot of that is is simply the economics of scarcity. You've had supply disruptions around the world. You also have businesses trying to catch up. They've lost a lot of money. So if you go to a pub now, you might find meals and pints are you know, a pound or two higher than they were a little bit before. And I think it's entirely understandable that businesses are responding to that scarcity, but also putting their prices up to try and recoup some of those losses. And those may continue for a few months further. So I think those aren't necessarily base effects, but they are one-off reasons they're due to supply constraints and these sort of isolated factors. For me, the question is, will that become persistent? Yes, you can increase the price this year. Most of us won't really bat an eyelid. But actually, if the pub is putting up the price of its meals 5 or 10% next year and the year after, that's the point you start to say, OK, hang on. One, once I can accept, it's it's that persistence that I think is more more of an open question. So that's on the backward looking element. And that's really sort of uh, what I think is happening with the numbers. In terms of what may happen in the medium term, there are all sorts of factors we need to look at. Monetary policy stimulus, fiscal stimulus. I think it's fiscal stimulus that's the game changer. And I do sort of worry about it because I think a lot of investors these days uh Inflation is just not something we've had to worry about for a very long time. Actually, I think you'll find in the investor base, it will be a very small proportion now that were financially and and active in in the investment terms back in the 70s when we did have very serious inflation problems. And it's those sort of regimes that have established a lot of central bank monetary policies that we have these days. So inflation is not something that people are used to. But it can be quite insidious. And if you do allow it to to run away, it can cause more significant problems. So I think inflation year on year will peak in the next few months, drop back. It'll probably still have a two handle, but it's probably going to be marginally above 
those targets. There's lots of reasons of why that will be, not least central banks targeting that, you, that they use code phrases like average inflation targeting. That implies maybe a little above the two two percent. There are some risks to the upside. There are also, though, don't forget, there are some potential risks to the downside as well. So something that that we're all focusing on. What do What do you think, though, in terms of? Um how you factor that into to asset classes and things like that. I mean, as you say, there's there's the you know, historic inflation price pressures, there's, there's the the medium term, but what does that effectively mean? Particularly, I suppose, a lot of people will be thinking about, you know, the fixed income portion of their portfolio. You know, how do you how do you play that? Obviously inflation linked bonds for on a basic level, but they're an imperfect proxy for 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 certain things, an imperfect um, way of capturing that rise. But but what what do you think when it comes to fixed income in particular? Well, within fixed income, and what's interesting, I think fixed income also knocks on to equities, and it depends what sort of environment that you are considering. Now, inflation-linked bonds can work very well, and we've held some of those. As I said, we initiated some positions last June. We've added a little bit to those. So we've used uh, primarily a sterling-hedged US TIPS ETF. that's given us quite nice exposure over the last 12 months. But you're exactly right. Some people, I think... Uh, misunderstand these instruments and think if you just buy them, you're automatically shielded from inflation. And that's not the case at all. I think what they are useful for is where there are changes in uh, interest rate expectations. And I think if you do have, so the, 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 the rationale for holding them thus far really has been, if you think inflation expectations will rise, but the central banks will keep rates where they are, there's been a lot of rhetoric over the last 12 months these will be pinned to the floor. So if your nominal interest rates from the central bank are, are pretty static, inflation's rising, that means that your real yield, so your, your yield discounting inflation drops, and that's an environment that the inflation-linked bonds can do can do relatively well. Now, though, I think that there is a risk that real rates are going to start responding, and that's where you see this difference. There are lots of asset classes that will do very well when inflation expectations are rising, and that includes equities, it includes um, in, index-linked bonds, and it includes things like gold. Historically, they've done quite well when inflation's rising, um, but, but real yields haven't really moved. But if you think the central bank's going to have to start responding, that does alter the landscape a little bit. Um, and, and as Dave touched on sort of at the top, the market's already starting to disagree with the Fed. The Fed has put out projections saying it expects inflation to increase, but rates to stay largely where they are. The market's already expecting a couple of hikes over over the next couple of years. So in terms of what you can do within fixed income, um, a rising inflation environment looks pretty unattractive for conventional government bonds. If you think that rates will, will stay relatively pinned, then inflation-linked bonds can have some attraction. I think the points to highlight in that, though, it's not just do you think inflation is going to be higher or lower? You know, it's it's not sort of price is right kind of territory. Instead, what you're looking at is what are the current expectations and do you think they'll be higher or lower than those expectations? And broadly speaking, uh, if you look at US tips, currently the market pricing is around two and a half percent inflation average over the next 10 years. So if you want to buy those sort of securities, you're effectively saying, I think actually inflation is going to be higher then that two and a half percent is already pretty rich. I think that is a relatively punchy call. You also have to think that the interest rates will, will remain relatively low where they are. So I think the relative attraction of those those index linked um, 
fixed income instruments are starting to become more nuanced. From a strategy perspective, though, I have to say I'm prepared to hold those. I still have some in my portfolios. But I think the rationale has shifted. If we have a recovery, if we have gently rising real rates and we have inflation at an elevated level, but not escaping dramatically, that's probably a positive environment for assets such as equities and other parts of my portfolio. The reason that I held uh, the US tips initially, is I thought inflation expectations would rise and real rates would remain relatively low or potentially drop. And that's largely what we've seen over the last year or so. So it's gone from a sort of actively being attractive. Now, I think you potentially use it more in terms of insurance against a spike in inflation. I don't think inflation is necessarily going to go higher. Um, I think my base case is sort of two and a half, three percent, just in case the central banks get behind the curve, in case I'm wrong and do start to see a significant increase in inflation. As I said, the risks are to the upside. That, I think, is an environment where those inflation-linked securities can, can help. But elsewhere in fixed income, and obviously fixed income is a large proportion, and particularly by lower risk mandates, I think with conventional sovereigns, particularly your sort of 10-year gilt, 10-year treasuries, looking unattractive, there's a little bit in index linked, effective as that insurance policy. But elsewhere, I think it's about keeping duration low, maybe taking a little bit more credit risk rather than interest rate sensitivity. You do get a little bit of, of correlation between some of the credit exposures and, and equity, but the magnitudes are more limited and there's still a potential to make some, some returns there. So I think it's very interesting. Is it's very nuanced at the moment. The other thing to remember as well, do focus, if you are thinking about inflation protected securities, do remember your duration. So duration is your sensitivity um, to, to yields, obviously. If you just buy an index, there are very significant differences in duration. Most of the, the US TIPS products have a duration a little less than 10 years, most sort of seven, eight, nine years range. In the UK, because the makeup of the market, the duration is north of 20 years. I think many of them are 22 and 23 years. They therefore tend to come with a lot more volatility and sensitivity. So if you are going that route and using an index product, make sure you understand what's in them. I think it's quite uh, notable just bringing together some of the things you've you've said when when we look at sort of our analysis of you know model portfolios right now. There's um, you touch upon you know retail investors and maybe the lack of experience of that don't have they don't have that inflationary mindset. But perhaps in the professional investor community, those those experiences do die hard, and that has been. You know that over the last decade, we've seen people worried about inflation for a lot of times when we've been in, nonetheless, in a deflationary uh, environment. Obviously, now things have changed, and and perhaps those inflationary fears are are more um, certainly more justified and um, perhaps coming into effect. But I think when you look at portfolios, you mentioned inflation-linked bonds. They do seem to still be a very small part of portfolios, partly because perhaps the professional investor community has thought well. You know, maybe the Fed is going to be on the wrong side of this. Maybe we do think that uh, rates are going to have to rise eventually. And it does seem, from what you said, that that credit, particularly in high risk portfolios, the, the credit risk seems to be the the favoured way of doing it. High yield, for example, I suppose high yield. You think early this year, we had the bond sell off, uh, investment grade credit got got hit a bit as you'd expect, but high yield sailed through relatively well. Is that is that something you think about as well? Sort of dedicated high yield exposure from that um, perspective from an inflationary perspective? Um, I, I I think it depends on your particular mandates. I, high yield has a place in some portfolios. It does come with that much more risk, though, and you're starting, particularly with high yield, you're starting to stray more um, into equity 
low low levels of equity type type risk. The the challenges twelve months ago were 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 very systemic in nature and down to the nature of the market. High yield is not a particularly it has liquidity, but I think you know after things like property funds and some other more esoterics, uh, what if you were to if a you know a, someone from the future came and said there's going to be liquidity crunch after those it tends to be the high yields and some of the lower quality credits uh, that, that that get hit. So I think some exposure can make sense. A lot of people actually, if you buy uh, bonds or bond funds, some of the strategic bond funds that have a bit of investment grade credit and a bit of high yield can be a good route some of some of my colleagues do have direct high yield exposure um elsewhere though i think uh, a little bit more in in credit and that can be the lower end of investment grade you know your, your sort of triple b triple b's and single a's can give you that exposure while still being in the more investment grade part as well on the um like on the sort of government bond front is there a kind of treasury yield level at which you would think there is kind of value there obvious value or are there kind of other criteria that you would have to consider it's an interesting question and and as with all these things if you ask me for for an actual number i i think it's it's very it, it it's for example anytime anyone says something like you know what do you what would the index level have to get to before you'd buy it or mass or sell it and you can guarantee it will always get within five points of that level and not actually hit it because everyone else has the same the same target set um you know i i think it would have to it, it ultimately it's very difficult to know you have to look at the dynamics in the market and whether you think where you think the recovery is going where you think think normalized rates may be and as always it it's it tends to be looking at, at real rates and you've got to look at what are the real returns on offer so certainly w- when i look at portfolios what we're trying to do is not just uh, grow grow our clients assets but it's sort of grow it in real terms to pr- preserve and grow purchasing power so we always look in real terms so from that point of view i i think you could argue but government bonds have basically been so unattractive um for for, for many years because if you buy them and hold them to maturity all you're going to do is lose money in, in real terms if you think inflation uh, is going to average around 2%. I think they probably become more interesting when you start to get a positive real return. And in the US, arguably, if you think 2 2.5% is uh, is reasonable, you know, US Treasuries, as you highlighted, they've now stabilised at an elevated level. But they have shown signs of tending towards that, that sort of real return level. I think a lot of investors will be would be... More, more investors at least would be comfortable holding something that was just going to clip you a, a marginally positive real real return now obviously that's going to depend on inflation um, but say two to two and a half percent on us treasuries assuming inflation expectations stay at that level uh basically a marginally positive real yield is i think is where where people will get interested and actually if you look back over the last 10 years we had said before i remember a point when a lot of uh fixed income ETFs, uh, core fixed income ETFs are launching, but not getting very much take up. And everyone said, you know, when are people going to start buying 10 year treasuries? And there was the, the magic 3% number, which gives you a comfortable real turn when we had inflation two or below. So I think when you get to a slightly positive real real yield, so in nominal yields on, on 10 years, slightly above expected inflation, then I think more investors will start considering them a little bit more actively. And I think if you start to get uh, sort of 100 basis points above that, 
dare I say, not actively attractive, but I think they could be a lot more interesting. And I think the other thing, just just tying it all together with with markets and, and asset allocation, at that point you might start to see a switch out of out of gold because gold is doing pretty well. Um, uh, it's dipped dipped a little, but it started to bounce bounce back as we as we sort of talk now. Um, and gold benefits actually for ages. You say it's a non yielding asset. Why would you hold it? Well, when you've got loads of negative yields. It becomes more attractive. But if you start to see treasuries recover, it does become a little bit more attractive. And I think it's interesting, as we said, when when 10 year treasuries were between two and a half and three percent uh, a few years ago, that's when you had these shocks in the market, just just short term shocks. But then you tend to see gold not really responding. People were buying treasuries because you can have you can clip a coupon and you have that buffering effect. So I think once you start getting a positive real yield, you could see a little bit of switching there as well. But I think we're still a little way away from that level. How about other real real assets, you know, alternative assets, you want to call them that as a, as a means of protecting against inflation? Obviously, uh, you know, real estate would traditionally be something people might look at equally. I suppose a lot of people now are, you know, operating in a the confines of a model portfolio and liquidity is important and and real estate has its own pressures, of course, given the situation we're in. So uh, are, there, are there other kind of real alternative assets you, you look at instinctively in this kind of environment? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's it's difficult. You've got, like I said, you, you can do, you deploy certain strategies within your fixed income. Worth remembering equities act a bit like a, a real asset just because of the pass-through that companies can have. Um, in your non-equity exposure you do start to come a little bit more limited um a little bit of property for those that are willing to hold it in a model portfolio and investors comfortable accepting some of the other risks that you tend to get through there's an interest there's quite a lot of interest in infrastructure at the moment not always entirely straightforward there's some closed-ended vehicles listed infrastructure but that's a little bit of a halfway house between the real asset itself and you get some of the equity market exposure uh, exposure as well those tend to be your your, your go-tos. Um, good absolute return strategies as well. It is worth highlighting when you have rising risk-free rates, there is an opportunity for some absolute return vehicles to mine that uh, a little bit more. Um, and those, if you have a good absolute return vehicle, they should be trying to generate a return regardless of what's happening with real rates and, and inflation. So not necessarily a real asset, but potentially an option if you're looking for something that's perhaps a little bit less exposed. Sure, no, but that makes sense. Well, let's you, you sort of touched on equities there and a couple of times, and let's maybe maybe shift slightly away from the inflation debate now and just uh, and just look at sort of the equity allocation. Um, this is something we've been writing about, uh, as you'd expect, quite extensively. Uh, in particular, the, the the inclination, the increased inclination to perhaps diversify away from the US. Uh, this obviously is now a, a kind of a non-inflation. Uh, debate, but more about you know valuation and the fact the US has done so well for so long. Um, what's your kind of view on that, and how perhaps how easy is it to to move away or to diversify from away from the US in a in a you know a balanced portfolio where, where the US accounts for so much typically? Yeah, it's it is always an interesting debate. I mean, ultimately, it does all come back to inflation and real rates. If you look at valuations that can be driven by such things. Um, but, but you are right, and I, I would sort of agree that the US looks looks pretty expensive at the moment. But and a lot of this, I think, comes comes down to, to two factors. One is how the US economy itself is doing. The US economy is very dynamic. We've seen this through crises. It tends to fall quickly, and it does have a little bit of a tendency to, to recover 
pretty well uh, in addition. The US also had a bit of an advantage going into this crisis. Um, and, and, you know, it's been talked about a lot before, but they had been through an interest rate hiking cycle. So they had a couple of hundred basis points of monetary policy they could stimulate by cutting rates, which is something that, that no other major central bank could really do. So that gave them a bit of an advantage as well. So part of it is on economic recovery. And I think it's interesting as I look at UK and European um, economic recoveries that are in their very early stages, the US, you look to as a sort of moving slightly ahead of us over here. They've had their inflation numbers coming through, but they've also had you know, their retail sales, their, their PMI, their industrial activity, and that could move over uh, later. So I think partly on an economic recovery story, as the recovery picks up elsewhere, I think the UK looks attractive, beaten up from, from an economic point of view. Worth remembering the economy itself is uh, is rather keyed in to the global economy. So as the global economy recovers, the likes of Europe, potentially Japan, could be a little bit more attractively placed to recover. I think the other aspect to it as well, though, is the nature of of the markets. So you've got the UK economy, but as people often uh, talk about, it is true. The the majority of the earnings of, say, uh, the the largest companies in the UK uh, the majority of those are derived overseas. So you've got to look at the makeup of the market as well. And that's partly what's hit UK equities, European equities. The stay at home trade has benefited the US with its big uh, mega cap technology buyer. So all you, all of those stocks doing pretty well, whereas a lot of the miners, the, the finance that you have in the UK, uh, oil and gas uh, were, were suffered quite disproportionately. And then you've got a lot of industrials and other bits that, that have mixed between the two. So I think. The, the two things to consider there then is how is the region going to do economically, but importantly, how is the market going to respond? I think if you look at the US, valuations do look pretty eye-watering. Um, and I think you can make a case that a lot of those that, that those mega caps may be that they have had their day. Not to say that they're due a correction or going to fall, but maybe other parts of the market are, are, are due a catch-up. You know, Netflix, there's probably a lot that there's obviously a lot they're doing, they're producing a lot of great shows. But frankly, who's spent the last 14 months without a Netflix subscription? Now the sun's coming out. Who's going to go, right, now what I need to do is actually get on and get my Netflix subscription uh, and catch up on Tiger King. You know, so I think there's that switch from the the stay at home trade to to some of the recoveries. So and the US does look expensive, dye watering. That said, I think you can get a little too excited about valuations uh, and and maybe there is a risk of saying it's too expensive. Those valuations are just going to snap back in over the next few years. Valuations can go through periods of of, of shift. The US tends to be a market that maintains a valuation at a slight premium to the rest of the world. It tends to have faster growth prospects as well. A lot of valuations can come in through strong earnings growth, too. So I think on a medium term basis, Maybe some of that valuation does need to come in and there's potential for other areas, particularly the UK emerging markets as well, um, to play a little bit of catch up. All sorts of tactical risks within there, the virus policy errors uh, uh, and all of that. That said, though, all else being equal, if you look at the valuation on the UK, it might make one uh, a little bit more wary. Also, though, it is worth looking at your instrument selection. Um, Because a lot of this, as we said, a lot's driven by sectors and companies. And there are a lot of good U.S. companies and a lot of good good U.S. funds that you can get exposure to that aren't expensive. A lot of the valuations at an aggregate level in the U.S. are driven by those mega caps that I think 
are are the areas starting to look less attractive? I think there are potentially some more value orientated options. There are also options in com- through funds that aren't in those particularly expensive elements. So it's not a dump the US, buy somewhere else. But it is a little bit, at an aggregate level, the US appears to have some valuation headwinds. Other economies have the potential to, to catch up. So it's about getting exposure to some of that catch up and making sure you're exposed to the right sectors within that as well. I suppose, in short, the the answer is, as ever, it's complicated. It's very complicated uh, <laughs> to, to do that. So moving on, um, I suppose another kind of really pressing industry issue might be worth discussing again is... Um, diversity um perhaps interesting maybe telling that it's uh, three white men currently discussing this um but um ben there's been i suppose some kind of some more developments on this this front um what are your kind of thoughts yeah i i think diversity is is a really important issue and the industry i think is moving in fits and starts i think that there's a lot of talk there's a lot of focus on it we talk about it and it feels like we're making progress but then sometimes when you're in a big conference and you look across the room and it doesn't seem we're making as much headway as we need to. And, you know, for, for example, recently I, I saw what was effectively a, a fund manager hall of fame um, that focused going back sort of 20 years. And the, the, I mean, the methodology itself weighted on, on how long the, the tenure has been. And I saw this hall of fame and, and frankly, it horrified me that the lack, the lack of diversity and it, you know, it just didn't sit, sit right with me. And I, I think, Diversity is something that we need to keep thinking about, and it's it, it, it's such a, an important issue. But I think it's also an important development for for the industry at the moment. If you look, diversity is is perhaps in its early stages. We need to get better. I think we need to reflect perhaps the broader pool of talent that's out there. That perhaps for for through, I think it, the, the point I highlight: it's no one person's fault. No one puts in policies that automatically are designed not to add diversity it's some of the you know these problems you have with algorithms where you train it on past data or where you have certain processes where unconscious bias just means that you're that you're not not thinking about it and I think we need to continue to work on that but that goes hand in hand with improving the industry I mean 20 years ago I think it's fair to say the industry was about star managers who all unfortunately look the same sounded the same tended to have the, the, the the same backgrounds and that's how the industry was. It's good that it's come a long way more recently. And I think what particularly grated me about about that that Hall of Fame, I, I can understand it's it makes sense on the surface to have like this really long tenure. Um, but actually, you know, I, I've experienced this. I, I'm, I'm a fund researcher, and a lot of those numbers they look great over a really long time period. But a lot of those managers had very good performance a decade ago and are coasting ever since. And putting them in a Hall of Fame, that's been no use to clients over the last five or ten years it's no use saying oh this manager uh you know was was great great in the noughties and i think you know i going hand in hand with the demise which i think is a good thing actually of the star manager is this this new focus i think it's important that we're accessing as wide a pool of talent as possible i think you need that diversity i think it, it helps reflect society it helps reflect our clients it also helps get as many perspectives in place as possible and i think that's a, that's a shift we're starting to see uh, and i want to see more of i'm bored of sort of the, the the same type of fund manager that we see the one that has to come and be a star manager that has to be able to present well rather than run man- money well and i think you know this idea that you can go to have a lunch with, with a manager who seems a nice guy you look him in the whites of the eyes 
is and think you know that's your guy that's not where we are these days for me it's about okay there's a team leader perhaps but who's in your team a good fund analyst i think will not just know the star manager they'll know the backup manager they'll know all the analysts and it's not just about has he got some sort of magic process it's about you know do you have the right perspectives? Are you doing the detailed research? Have you embedded a philosophy and a process across a good functioning team that can work well together? And I think part and parcel of a good, well-functioning team is, is about diversity. The whole, you know, whole spectrum, race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, and, and all of the, the, the broader spectrum. I think there's so much research now that that's what makes a good functioning team, that we should be focusing on that, not just who has been a named fund manager on a fact sheet for the, for the longest time. But beyond the kind of Hall of Fame, have you seen, are you witnessing kind of a greater mix amongst those kind of mid-ranks and more junior staff? Or so I imagine it will take time, like you say, to feed through. Uh, it, it will do, but I, uh, and, and I accept that that's a, a point that, that has often been discussed. It does take time. I think there are an awful lot of actually quite established, good uh, fund managers of all all diverse backgrounds that, that perhaps need a little bit bit more of a of an airing. I am seeing more coming through the ranks. The middle ranks are getting into the to the more senior ranks. I think part of it as well though is just getting away from having a fund represented by just one senior person. You've got to get the, the teams out there and it, it does need to be more you know, maybe it's harder logistically than having one person ahead of the table. Uh, in a roundtable lunch but it's about showcasing those teams it's about you know being honest about who in the team are decision makers who's involved rather than uh, a figurehead and I think they are coming through and as I said I, I think the industry is making a lot of strides at the same time though I think we still need to push on it because I, I, I think you know b- because of my background perhaps I perhaps I, I'm biased and don't actually know because of because may, maybe of my privilege but I think if people uh, from, from you know that, that are affected by these diversity inclusion issues look at the industry as it is now if they go on and look at that hall of fame it's going to put them off and i think you need to just get the message clear you need to make it appealing from a, a, a younger age you need to make sure that your recruitment processes uh, and your pools are focusing on this issue and you're getting the right candidates and i think there has been a push the risk is if you then lapse back into old practices you know that that might not be sustained so that's why we've just got to keep up the pressure i think Well, it's a very important topic. Uh, Thank you for that, Ben. Uh, That's all we have time for today. Uh, Thank you again to Ben for taking part and thank you for listening. And do check out the regular Asset Allocator newsletter for more debate and exclusive data on the big decisions facing fund selectors. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com 
Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.